0: the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover
1: how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate Podcast.
0: Hey, guys. Alana,
1: you've got a story for us this week.
0: I do. It's a long one, but it's, I think it's a good one. I can't uh, wait to hear it. Yeah. Well, and it's the first for us because we'll be talking about female serial killer. Oh. As we all are because we love true crime. We probably are all a little obsessed with serial killers or just like the psyche and, and talking about them. And I thought about doing a serial killer, but the problem with the serial killer, not only are they a serial killer, but their victims are all over the place. This one's in the same home. So yeah, it, it is
1: hard to find a home associated <laughs> right. with multiple right, multi- murders. Right. Yeah. Thank so God. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In a good way. Right. <laughs>
0: So we're talking about, like I said, a female serial killer. And we're also going to talk about how she preyed on some of society's most vulnerable victims, the unhoused and the developmentally disabled and mentally unwell individuals. Today, we are going to be discussing Dorothea Puente and the murder of seven such individuals under her care. Seven. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested. I actually don't know the story. Yeah. I'll get into it a little bit later, but it's actually nine, but seven were under, directly under her care- Um, as uh, very vulnerable members of society. So So like we do on every episode, let's talk about the home. 1426 F Street in Sacramento, California is a two-story Victorian style home. Built in 1895, the home is nestled within a neighborhood known as Mansion Flats. Mansion Flats is located between Midtown and downtown Sacramento, and at the time of the crime, it was a pale blue multifamily home standing at 1,834 square feet.
1: Okay, so I think that's a term we use in real estate a lot that maybe our listeners may not be as familiar with. So multifamily, just in case you don't know, is it's really like any residential property that contains more than one housing unit. So it could be a duplex or a triplex. It could be, you know, condos or apartment complex, yep. that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Oh, thanks, Heather. Yeah. And um, was, was this originally a multi-dwelling home or is it like a lot of these older homes that is then split
0: up later at, in time? Yeah. I'm assuming it was split up between 1895 and in the 80s when our story takes place. Um but I've not verified that, but I'm assuming so.
2: Yeah. I'm taking a look at a picture of it right now and I bet that's how it is. Mm -hmm. I've definitely found that in some of these older neighborhoods that over time, that just for the economics of scale, that it might've been a, you know, like in my neighborhood, there's been a lot of the homes that were once, you know, singular homes Mm -hmm. that over time have been split up into two or even four units. Right. And then sometimes put back together.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause if you could make, one rent, why don't you make two rents? Well, like, yeah.
1: And if you think about how homes of that age were sort of laid out, they were all boxes, mm-hmm. right? So you would walk into a center hallway, and then to your left, you had a box of a room. To your right, you had a box mm-hmm. of a room. And so their floor plan really flows well in terms of just sort of like cordoning stuff mm-hmm. off and making sections. Right. Yeah. It's not like you have a big open kitchen living yeah. that. You know, yeah, it's much
2: it. much harder if you were doing an open concept yes, living like yes. that's popular today to split up. But absolutely, um, you know, in these four squares or things like that, I could see that happening.
1: Right. So, so how, how did they split this one up?
0: So the top floor of this multifamily home contained three bedrooms and one bathroom, while the first floor had two bedrooms and one bathroom. Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to touch briefly on Dorothea's background. And I don't do this to draw any sympathy for this She was a calculated and cold-blooded killer, but I do it because I think it's interesting to delve into someone's background and I hope you can find it interesting as well. Sure, I think that makes sense. So Dorothea Helen Gray was born in 1929 in Redlands County, California. Her parents, Jesse James Gray and Trudy Mae Yates were both cotton pickers, both alcoholics and both abusive of Dorothea. Because her parents would often squander their earnings on alcohol or illicit substances, Dorothea and her six siblings would often have to scrounge for food. It is reported that her father would threaten suicide often and at times held a gun up to his head and threatened to do so in front of his family. At the age of eight, Dorothea lost her father to tuberculosis. Her mother, Trudy May, returned to sex work and was rarely home with her children. A year after her father died, Dorothea's mom died in a motorcycle accident. And by 1938, all seven of the gray children were orphaned and in and out of various foster families and care facilities. She has stated that it was during this time that she had been sexually abused. And by the time Dorothea was 16, she had run away from foster care and found herself in Olympia, Washington. There, she worked at a milkshake parlor and worked as a prostitute, and soon caught the eye of 22-year-old Fred McFowl. McFowl had just returned from the Philippines, where he served during World War II. As it turns out, though, marital bliss was not in the cards for Dorothea. Wait, so she got married at the age of 16? Yes. Um, it's kind of up to, for the debate as to whether or not he knew her age. There were some reports that he thought she was 30. But, 30? Yeah. Yeah. Man, she lived a
1: hard 16 I years know. if he thought she was 30. Right.
0: Exactly. And they met because he was a client of hers. They met in a hotel room where she was working as a prostitute. And I feel like you could tell the difference between a 30-year-old and a 16-year-old, but supposedly he said that she said she was 30.
1: Okay. And what year are we in here? Mm, like 1930, 1940, maybe? Yeah, in the 40s. Definitely the 40s. Okay, so, I mean, 16 is still very young, mm-hmm. but not as crazy out of the ordinary as it would be today.
0: Right. Yeah. She wasn't getting Botoxed and all dolled up and stuff. Yeah, but I'm just saying to get married at 16. Oh, to get married. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought, you were, I thought you were playing the angle of her looking 30. Oh, no. Yeah. No. But you're right. Yeah, yeah. She, she probably did not yeah. have Botox. Mm-mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. She and Fred had two children, one of whom was sent to live with the relatives and one who was given up for adoption. And in 1948, after suffering a miscarriage, Fred left Dorothea after three years of marriage. Having lost the financial support of a husband and having an alleged love of fancy items, Dorothea res- resorted to check fraud. She was caught and spent six months in jail after pleading guilty to two counts of forgery. In 1952, Dorothea tries her hand at marriage again and wed Seaman. Axel Johansson, but again, like her first marriage, this one was rocky and unstable, to say the least. It was I feel re- like Axel is a pretty modern name yeah, for cool. that for that time like period. It, it seems like it. a little cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is reported that Axel would return home from sea to find men living at their home, and neighbors reporting to him that taxis were seen at all hours of the night, dropping men off to his wife. Puente began heavily abusing alcohol and gambling away Johansson's money. Their turbulent marriage lasted a rough 14 years. Okay,
1: but by all accounts,
0: he was a good husband and she was... Y- yeah, from what I could tell, yes, it seems like he may have been. I couldn't find any documented stories of him ever doing any harm to her. And I read that he even had her committed for a short time in hopes that that would help save her and their marriage. And I also read that in a jailhouse interview, Dorothea spoke fondly of Axel calling him a good-hearted man and saying that she was good to him. So it does seem like he was he was a good guy.
1: So he was good to her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine what your husband would do if he came oh home God from a work trip <laughs> and the neighbors oh were like, hey.
0: I know, by the way. Or if he just found men living in your right. home. I, he would not have stayed 14 years. No. Mm-mm, mine <laughs> either. <Yeah. laughs> so what finally broke the camel's back of that 14-year marriage was when Dorothea was arrested during a raid of a Sacramento area brothel that was masquerading as a bookkeeping service. Apparently, an undercover cop posing as a trucker arrested her after she offered to perform a sex act on him. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah.
1: It's like one thing when you can keep it a little quiet. It's another one she's been arrested for yeah, 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 yeah,
0: that's, that's a bad one. So she was arrested for the brothel situation and spent the next 90 days in jail. And in 1968, we find her to be 38 years old, twice divorced, with multiple arrests under her belt. But again, she weds for the third time. And again, for the third time, this marriage would not be a happy one. 21-year-old Robert Jose Puente was a compulsive cheater and their marriage lasted less than two years. I was, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, so she married older and younger. Yes. She's 38 at the time. Correct.
0: Okay. Right. Yeah. Now it was said that he married her for a green card. I don't know if this is true, but but that's what I read, but you're not going to believe this. After that marriage to Robert Puente fell apart, she got married for a fourth time. Let me guess, this marriage was like dead on arrival, too. I know?
1: I mean, she seems to have a pattern at
0: this Yeah, least. she really does. This one would be her shortest marriage at one week. And it was said that he may have fled their home out of fear, as it is reported by this point, her psychopathy was now on full display. Wow. Okay. So just to interrupt, but,
2: you know, we call her Puente today, but yet that was actually the name that she got from mm-hmm. a one week marriage.
0: Uh, no, that was her third marriage to Robert Jose Puente, who was the cheater. Oh. They were married for less than two years. They got divorced and then she married another man, but kept the Puente name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was a, it's it's sorry. A sorry. It's, 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 it's a lot.
1: It's a lot. So I wonder, like, you know, because my background's in psychology and I'm always so fascinated by people and human behavior. Like, what does that say to have these like compulsive, short marriages? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't. That's a really good question. I wanted the same thing. You can make the case for a few things. I think like Axel was a good person and truly really cared for her. Why would she constantly cheat on him? Maybe she felt like she wasn't worthy of of his care or love. Maybe it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that totally. And you know, maybe her third marriage to a cheater was herself punishing herself for what she did. To Axel. I mean, it wasn't like she needed the money at that time. It seemed like Axel like provided well for right. his family and yes. actually was concerned that she was going through his money. Right. And you know, I think it's different when you're, you know, out on the streets as an orphan, you know, there's a lot that can, you have to do what you got to do. Like, right. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm not like giving her a pass on everything, but that's a it's just a different story. She right. didn't seem like she had to be out working as a prostitute right. when she was married. Exactly. She was
0: still doing all that stuff. Yeah. It's really sad. Phil um, had other podcast in our, our midst realtors discussing psychology oh yeah
1: i have so many podcast ideas have it all written down
0: yeah okay good
1: yeah good okay we'll tackle
0: that you know i have a list (laughs) spreadsheet and in genre and highlighted yeah
1: yeah. (laughs) color coded and everything
0: we could call it what like
1: flipping the mind or Uh, uh, i don't know if that's not very good we'll figure something (laughs)
0: out so we next find Dorothea seemingly trying to be a productive member of society. She moved into a home at 2100 F Street, and it would become her first boarding home. She became known to social workers as someone who had a propensity to care for those who couldn't help themselves, those down-and-out souls who had nowhere else to turn. So a boarding house. Mm-hmm. um,
2: I, you see it a lot in old movies. So a boarding house, and I'm just kind of riffing here. Yeah. It was the idea. It was a house where you might just actually get a room. You're not getting an apartment. You're not you know, renting the entire house. You, there might be a six bedrooms or four bedrooms or whatever, and you're basically getting one bedroom, and you're sharing mm-hmm. like the bathroom. Mm-hmm. As you know, as if you're like a, just a big roommate situation.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right so she would often take in those that other places had turned away, the elderly, ex-cons, alcoholics, drug addicts, and the disabled. Unfortunately, though, things were not as they seemed on the outside. Dorothea was taking the benefit checks from her tenants, forging their signatures, and writing the checks over to herself. Dorothea would spend her days at the home and her nights at local bars picking up elderly men. Before long, her ruse was busted when one of her tenants was serving time in jail, and police noticed that his government check was still being cashed despite being in lockup. For this crime, she would be sentenced to five years probation. Many believe that she was let off easy because of her grandmother-like appearance and demeanor. Although Dorothy was in her 50s, she looked to be much older. She'd been looking much older since she was 16 going on 30. (laughs) Right, true. She allowed her hair to go gray and purposefully wore draping clothing and dated makeup when she realized that looking older gave her an advantage. So one of the stipulations of her probation was that she was not to run a boarding house, care for the elderly, or handle other people's government checks. So for years, Dorothea bounced around the state, becoming an in-home nursing aide for the elderly, but as was her M.O., her intentions were not altruistic. She began drugging the people she was supposed to be caring for so that they would be in an even more vulnerable state and therefore easier to steal from. April of 1982, police believe, is the first time that her crimes escalated to murder. 52-year-old Ruth Monroe was stated to be a friend of Dorothea's and had moved in with her after her husband died. Ruth brought all of her personal belongings plus $6,000 in cash, everything that she had. Their time together would be short-lived as Ruth suddenly died of what was determined to be suicide by drug overdose of Tylenol and codeine. Police believe Dorothea's account that her friend had been severely depressed.
1: Okay, but wait. Wasn't, was she arrested for stealing mm-hmm. those government checks earlier or just put on probation? She was put on probation. And you would think that would raise like a lot of red flags from I the authorities, know. but maybe back then they didn't have as many like checks on could this be. kind of thing. Yeah, like maybe that's be. where some of that stemmed from.
0: Maybe so. No, but later in 1982, she would be caught and arrested after a man that she met in a local bar told police that she got him to take her to his home, where she spiked his drink and robbed him of coins, jewelry, watches, and a diamond ring belonging to his mother that he claimed she pried off of his finger while he was incapacitated. Dorothea was sentenced to five years in prison for this crime, but only ended up serving three years and released early for good behavior. While she was in prison, she began writing to 77-year-old retiree Everson Gilmouth. When she was released from prison in 1985, she and Everson moved into 1426 F Street. Everson believed that he and Dorothea were going to get married, but that was not to be. Puente hired a local handyman to build her a box that was incidentally the size of a coffin. She promised to pay him, plus give him her boyfriend's truck, whom she claimed had moved to Los Angeles and no longer wanted. The handyman returned to the home a few days later to find Dorothea had nailed the box shut. She asked him to help her take the box to a storage facility, and on the way there, she abruptly instructed him to pull over and help her dump the box into the river.
1: Okay. Ding, ding, ding. This should right. have been like sending warning signals and bells right. to this handyman. But it didn't. Okay. <laughs> <No>. Well, <laughs> for future reference, if somebody asks you to get rid of a box and they dump it in the river, you should be curious. No I mean,
2: <laughs> it would have to have been a heavy box. Yeah. 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 Okay.
1: Sorry to interrupt. No, I just, no like, you're good. It's valid. poor handyman. I know. <laughs> it's like, what are we
0: doing? <laughs> <laughs> so the box was found by Fisherman the next month, and it did contain Gilmouth's remains, but he wouldn't be identified for three years until 1989. And that, like we said, the handyman claimed he didn't know was in the box, but very weird. So despite it being a violation of her probation, Dorothea opened another boarding house at 1426 F Street in Sacramento. She started to again take in those in dire need. She was able to get herself added as signers on their government support checks, depositing all but a small amount of their check into her personal account. She gave them the small amount and justified her actions by telling them that, they, that she had only taken what was needed for room, board, and other living expenses. Soon, social workers were again calling on Dorothea to take in their troubled cases. According to one social worker, Peggy Nickerson, who had sent 19 people to live with her, Quote, Dorothea was the best the system had to offer. By the time Dorothea was suspected of any wrongdoing, she had killed people. Four of those people were sent to her by Nickerson. In the years leading up to her arrest, law enforcement came to her home 15 times as a consequence of her probation.
1: Okay, it seems almost inconceivable that, one, the system was still sending people to her after she had been arrested for this fraud, and two, like they've come out 15 times right. and they don't notice that she's violating her probation in
0: any way. What is she doing? Like hiding these people in the basement when the police come? It doesn't make any sense. I, I read one thing that said maybe they were turning a blind eye because it did seem like she was providing good care for these people. And, and then some reports that maybe they they just had no idea. So who knows? But it's especially jarring when you learn that the neighbors have been complaining about an odor emanating from the home. Dorothea claimed that her sewer was backed up at times. At other times, she claimed that it was a fish fertilizer she spread in the yard. So in, 19, in November of 1989, it became clear what the smell was and police went to work digging in Puente's backyard. But what sent them there in the first place wasn't stellar police work or anything. A social worker who had placed Alvaro, Bert, Montoya, and Dorothea's care became suspicious when she was told that he simply left one day to be with his brother in Mexico. Montoya was a developmentally disabled man with schizophrenia No family. So the social worker found the story to be odd and a few days later filed a missing persons report with the police. When police showed up to 1426 F Street, they were passed a note by tenant John Sharp. The note read, quote, she wants me to lie to you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. With her permission, the officers entered the house and started looking around. Seeing nothing out of the ordinary inside, they glanced outside and noticed a fresh mound of dirt. While the detectives searched, Dorothea requested to go to a nearby hotel to grab a cup of coffee to quell her nerves. Not having enough evidence to arrest her, they allowed her to go, go, but instead of grabbing coffee, she was on the run to Los Angeles. Back at the house, the researchers have now dug up seven bodies total. When Dorothea never returned to the home, officers put out an alert and she I'm was- Sorry. Oh, they,
2: they allowed
0: her to go yeah. to the and then shockingly, she did not return right. to the home.
2: <laughs> sorry, sorry.
0: I guess it was still that she just looked like a grandmother. Like to me, when I saw yeah. pictures of her, she looks evil to me, but I know the story. But I guess maybe then she looks it can be really deceiving. Sweet. Exactly. So when um she never returned home. The officers put on an alert, and she was soon apprehended in a seedy L.A. motel near the city's Skid Row. When she was found, she had already started running her game again, trying to pick up men at bars, and it was one of these men who tipped off police after he saw her picture on the news. She just did not know when no, to quit. No, seriously. And she had enough
2: game that despite looking so old right. and grandmother she could still pick up seriously. men at bars.
0: Seriously. So, Dorothea was sentenced to life in prison, though it is believed that there were many more. She was charged for the murder of nine people and was on trial for 24 days. Ultimately, she was found guilty of three counts of murder while the jury deadlocked on the other six. She died in custody of natural causes in 2011 at the age of 82. She had become a published author, though, writing a book with a pen pal entitled Cooking with a Serial Killer. What? Yeah.
1: <laughs> she says why, he he why do you want to cook with a serial killer? I don't know. Why do you want to be a pen pal to someone... Uh-huh. I don't understand pen pals in general. Well, you've though. mentioned that before. Yeah.
0: I don't think it's weird. Well, I don't know. That's weird. But the serial killer pen pal. You never had
2: a pen pal when you were a kid? No. I had like a pen pal with a kid in Russia. I had a pen pal with a kid in Spain. Melanie, we had actual friends. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I, I'm no, um, I'm You're
0: very cultured. So, of course oh, you have, have a culture in other um countries. I, I used
2: to be so excited when I would get like that the, the, the airmail envelopes which were like a, completely different than regular
1: envelopes. That's sweet. Oh, my gosh. Well, I got tickled when you were talking about her picking up men in a bar. You know, I think we've joked, like, I got married at 21. I would have no idea how to go out and pick up men at a bar. Like That is terrifying to me. I think you just, like, look at them.
0: Is that all you do? And they're, like, in a trance and, like, can I buy you a drink? Oh. Yeah, I think. I don't know. Melanie? I never had to do that. I was just real cute when
1: I was young and you know, then got married and haven't worried about it yeah. since. Yeah,
0: Well, some of us got married older
1: because we weren't as cute. So. I'm sure that <laughs> so is we not some the time case. The <laughs> we can go to the
2: bar this weekend. Uh. I'll show you.
1: How <laughs> I'm sure my husband would love that. I'm
0: sure my husband would love that
1: too.
0: <laughs> so do you want to know what happened with the house? Yes, obviously. So I couldn't ascertain exactly what happened right after the murders and she was on trial and in prison, maybe it just sat vacant. The first thing I could find post-discovery was a sale by the owners in 2002 for $150,000. The owners updated the home, painting the interior and exterior, refinished the floors and paved the side of the yard where the bodies were found. In 2011, Barbara Holmes and her husband, Tom Williams, purchased the home at a public auction for $215,000. The home is a designated historic home, and it can never be torn down. But that's okay for Barbara and Tom, who have totally embraced the home's history. They have a mannequin in the backyard, dressed like Dorothea, complete with ball rimmed glasses and a red house coat. Stop it. They do. Stop it. Oh, we'll put it, the pictures up. It's creepy, but kind of cool, but creepy. Okay. Yeah, they've totally bought into it. They were never creeped out by the home's history, and they had the home spiritually cleansed multiple multiple times before moving in. They use Dorothea's old bedroom as a guest room and their bedroom, which used to be the laundry room, is where she would lay the bodies before taking them to the backyard to bury. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess it's true that there's a house for everybody out there. <laughs> that should be your new tagline. <laughs>
2: wow. Well, um, well, okay. He, so I was reading it. There's actually like articles and interviews with Tom. Mm-hmm. Like he He's very proud. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not like... You know, in some of these cases where somebody buys a house and moves in later on, you know, they are trying to stay on the down low. It's mm-hmm. not something that they're trying to celebrate. No, no. He is yeah. full on. He's fun. I mean, he does sound fun, but full on embracing it. And then from this Newsweek article, I was just reading, he goes, our realtor was brand new. He was young and didn't know anything about the house's history. We asked to see the inside, so we went ahead and made some arrangements. On the way home, we looked up the address online, which we've talked about like nowadays, Mm -hmm. don't you always just look up the address online? And then he goes, when we discover the crimes which had taken place at the house, I got excited. As a fan of true crime books, this thing kind of interests me. I immediately wanted to live in the house. I love it. Okay, Tom. I feel like we need to have Tom in the podcast. I was just thinking that. Maybe we can find his social media. Well, we know where he lives? Oh,
1: (laughs) yes, we do. (laughs) Sorry, Tom. We're not going (laughs) to stalk you. We promise. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the story of Dorothea Puente. That was really fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so would you
0: buy it? Uh, Live there? List it? What would you do? I kind of like what Tom and and Barbara did. I would not live there, though. But I kind of like the idea of maybe like, I don't know, doing something like that. I would not live there. No. No. I would list it.
2: Yeah. I mean, no, I would not live there. (laughs) Like, I usually am pretty good about Mm -hmm. living anywhere. But this is weird. It's like, you know, a serial killer, multi. Well, and they were buried in the
1: backyard. Mm -hmm. That freaks me out. I don't like it. You are not like it. You're
2: grilling out the backyard, yeah. letting mm-hmm. the kids or grandkids play around.
1: Mm-hmm. The dog starts digging and you're yeah. like, well, then There's your always no. a chance. There's more in there.
0: I mean, it could be. Yeah. Well, know. you said earlier that it was seven, but maybe nine. Who <laughs> it, were the other two? It was nine. There were seven buried in her backyard. And then there were nine total because she married Ruth or married. Oh, my gosh. She killed Ruth, her roommate. Oh, that's right. And then she killed... Oh, the box oh, boy. The, the, yeah, the guy in the coffin. Her fiancé oh, her boyfriend. that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. Seven total at the house, at that house, and then nine total. But
2: they believe there's a lot more. I mean, if you think about it, if that's just what they found, like, at the tip of the investigation, there probably was a lot oh, more. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And so,
1: she- was there a podcast about this lady or was it another lady that did something similar?
0: I don't know. I, I know she recently had a story on Netflix, I think, um worst roommate ever i think it was called oh that's a good show yeah
1: yeah yeah. um okay i'm looking really quick okay i found the podcast i was looking for it's called the thing about helen and olga and um keith morrison from dateline does it it's like six episodes um but these ladies are on a mission to help homeless men in los angeles Mm -hmm. but do something sort of similar interesting Okay, so we'll link to that in the show notes if anybody's interested yeah. in listening to a story about another
0: person that does yeah. something sort of similar. Yeah, I wanted to throw this out here really fast, too. I looked up a few facts about female serial killers, and oh, only yeah. 8.6% of known U.S. serial killers are female, and 70% of female serial killers acted for financial gain.
2: Interesting. interesting.
0: Yeah, only 86 are female.
2: Kind of versus the the concept of like serial killers
0: for the love of killing, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's hmm. interesting. I
2: wonder uh, because you know so many of the male serial killers that we've heard of, you know, it's kind of for the thrill,
1: mm-hmm. right? Well, and she definitely. I mean, look, you you were right in the beginning. Like, we're not giving her a pass because of her hard upbringing. But she definitely had the kind of upbringing that leads to instability and, you know, all sorts of other problems mm-hmm. later in life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she had to hustle for money from the time she was very young. Right.
2: And there is a trend in so many, unfortunately, of our um, our killers or uh, criminals that have had poor um not poor money-wise, but like had bad upbringings. And there's definitely a very close tie to kind of how they end up. But that's not to say that there aren't the vast majority of people who may have disadvantaged backgrounds that end up normal, good, you know, society, ethical people. You know, it does not uh, create, it doesn't create monsters, mm-hmm. but it does it definitely does
1: not uh, help. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I I mean... This was a really interesting story, Elena. Thanks hey. so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I mean, I guess technically this is our Thanksgiving episode, mm. so we hope now that you guys will go love on your families and um, maybe enjoy you're the time listening with them. to
2: this while you're uh, cooking or
0: hanging out with the family. Maybe you're cooking with a serial killer. Oh my oh. gosh, maybe. <laughs> Wait, did you look at the book? I didn't. I don't want to look I, at it. Yeah, you're like <laughs>
2: no. Well. If anybody out there wants to look at the cookbook and make something for your Thanksgiving table, uh, we will send you some merch if you send us some pictures.
1: Absolutely, yeah, we have some great merch now. Elena was led that up for us, and it's awesome. We've got some hats, we got some coffee cups. So I love the hats. Yeah, you haven't given me one. I haven't got mine either.
0: I'm into. Sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I love all. I've worn them all. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll have a great Thanksgiving. Of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, share it with your friends and family over your Thanksgiving meal. We would love for you to tell them about it and give us a five-star review and we'll see you next week. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com. or on Facebook
0: and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.